0: you should always bring in the you're simply talking to them about your business model you're learning about what their goals are and then once you do that then if you find something that meets their financial goals you share it with them best ever listeners do you want to make more money on your real estate projects well i'm guessing that i'm hearing you say oh yeah baby (laughs) well guess what my friends today's best ever sponsor fund that flip is working with well one of our previous best ever guests who has the most one of the most popular episodes jay scott if you aren't familiar with this episode then go check that out episode 217 if you are because you're a loyal best ever listener then you know that he knows how the heck to both analyze deals, especially flips, how to optimize the profits on those flips, and how to look at the market. Because of that, Fund That Flip, today's sponsor, has worked with him and put together a guide that is the seven tips to increase your real estate profits in today's market. Go check that out. Go get that guide. I've read through it myself. I've learned a lot of things from it, from how to analyze the market cycles as well as how to optimize profits and not lose money or mitigate your risk for losing money on your deals. Go check it out. FundThatFlip.com forward slash best ever. That's F-U-N-D phatfli forward slash best ever. You're going to learn the tools to better understand your local market and position your business for success. You're gonna know how to analyze the real estate cycle and how to use short-term investing to capitalize on the market cycle. And seven concrete actionable tips to make more money on your deals fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, hello. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the show where we cut out the fluff and we only talk about the best advice that moves your business forward. And, well, this is also the world's longest running daily real estate podcast. With us today, I've got Theo Hicks, who is a loyal best ever listener. I know you know Theo. He is a co-author with me. He's the co-author of The Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever, Volume 1, as well as a podcaster, a fellow podcaster. Go check out his podcast called Unplugged. And the reason why is because, in my opinion, it gives you a fresh perspective on things that you might take for granted or might be conditioned to think just automatically. But I love hearing Theo and his guests as they talk about just common occurrences or things that are happening in everyday life and in the news that perhaps there's another side to think about. I really enjoy hearing that podcast and learning from that. And today, we're doing Follow Along Friday, which is a special segment we do on Fridays because, well, I got a lot going on. And I think what I've got going on can help you in your real estate endeavors and your real estate business. So, That being said, we got to say hi first to Theo. Theo, how's it going?
1: Doing good, Joe. Thanks for that introduction. I could not have described my podcast any better.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. And looking forward to diving in today, follow along Friday. First thing that's top of mind for me is the project in Dallas that I'm buying with investors. That has been, it's scary because it's been the smoothest out of all the deals I've done in terms of identifying it, getting it under contract, bringing in investor equity, having conversations with investors. And now we're about, 30, about 40, 45 days from closing. And I just don't want to jinx anything. So I'm I, I'm like, with trepidation, I mention it because things are going way too smoothly than what they've done in every other project. But nonetheless, for full transparency, this puppy in terms of Just overall money raise as well as the property due diligence and everything else, it's gone really well.
1: I'm assuming that as your projects go on, they're increasing in size. And so would you say that this is probably not only the smoothest, but would it be the largest one you've done as well? So kind of like a a double whammy?
0: Almost ties for the largest. The largest is a 320 unit called Carrollton Oaks Mm -hmm. in Carrollton, Texas that we closed on about, I don't know, six, I don't know, not six months, like four months ago. And then this one is a 296-unit apartment community. So it's in the same ballpark as that.
1: What would you say is the smoothest, easiest project thus far? Not jinxing it, knock on wood. What would you say would be a couple of reasons or main reasons why it's gone so smooth this time around? I guess besides the fact that you're getting more and more experience and things are easier to actually do. But is there something else that is going on that you're seeing that, I guess, you might not have necessarily been expecting or anything along those lines?
0: I'd say one thing on the investor front, referrals. In particular, one investor has introduced me to a bunch of people, and that has greatly expedited things. But then also... I've had a couple of my existing investors just go much larger than what they have done in the past. And I think the only reason is because they have now tested it and now that they're comfortable going a little bit larger mm-hmm. or a lot larger rather. So it's really organic growth is to sum it up what it boils down to. Now it's from an equity side. From a process standpoint for the deal just going smoother We have it down to the level that we want it, but there's formulas on paper and we're following the formulas and we're constantly tweaking it, but small things like the back and forth process we have with our management company that is looking at our underwriting and making sure that they can achieve it before it was a formalized process. But now we've been working with each other on more than one deal In this case, this will be the fourth. And we just know how each other works. And we're able to answer the questions that we used to have before even asking them to them. So specifically, what type of expenses are we going to be looking at for administrative? Or what type of marketing budget should we put in place? Or what type of occupancy can we look at for this property over the first 24 months whenever we're doing the renovations. Those types of things where we'd have an idea, but we'd go to them for more collaborative input, whereas now we're going to them for, yes, that looks good. And there's less collaboration because we're anticipating what they're going to say. And that one instance of having the anticipation of what they're going to be saying is a microcosm of the larger process that is going a lot smoother because we're doing more deals. For example, even with working with brokers, as silly as that sounds, but brokers are a major component to this whole business, especially if you're buying on-market deals. So when we now work with brokers, we have And one broker in particular, we have more of a a track record with him. And one deal that we are looking at for one investor in particular who's going to do the whole thing, actually, it's the same seller that we bought another deal from. And Mm. so we've already got a track record with the seller. And perhaps, I don't know about for sure, but perhaps we can get more favorable terms because they know that we're going to close.
1: So it sounds like high-level-wise is kind of when you first started off, you kind of first knew these people and met these people, and the connection, I guess, wasn't there. Whereas now, as time kind of goes on, that relationship's getting stronger and stronger, where you can build more trust, you don't have to do and double-check every single little thing, which I'm sure in turn decreases the amount of time you're spending. Like for instance, when you're talking about talking with the managers and the underwriting, you went from kind of being collaborative and you both having to do kind of the same thing, whereas now it's like you're anticipating beforehand what they're going to give back to you so that we both don't have to kind of do the same thing. So I'm curious to see if that's something that's common, all the different steps in the process, and you see that as you do more and more of these deals, the amount of time you're spending in each of the steps get less and less. Does that happen?
0: Most of the steps, yes. Especially the equity raise for this deal. And I'm anticipating other deals. I haven't quite reached a tipping point with investors where I send out an email and in 24 hours, the whole thing's filled up. But I think in two to three years, assuming that we keep delivering on what we say we're going to deliver... I think it's going to be, I send out an email in 24 hours, $5 million, $10 million is filled up because I've got investors now who are investing 500000 from just an email that I send out. And then obviously they look at the deal, but they know the type of qualification process that we have with our deals. And they also know we're losing out on a lot of deals because of that qualification process. So when we do find something, that it's going to be a good opportunity.
1: That's interesting because something that I read on bigger pockets a lot is they always say the adage: if you find a deal, the money will find you. I'm curious to see if kind of in your experience if that holds true, and if it's actually what's more difficult, or what's more time consuming, or what kind of takes longer to reach that tipping point: having a, a bunch of deals coming in, or having a bunch of money coming in.
0: Depends on the market cycle, I think. It will depend on which one's more difficult. Right now, it's more difficult to find a deal. Okay. You should always bring the investors into the conversation prior to having the deal, regardless of what market cycle you're in. And I mentioned that in my YouTube video that was posted this past week. For anyone who hasn't seen that, you can just go to my website, and click on videos and that video will be there. Just go to YouTube and put in Joe Fairless. I'm sure it will pop up. But I talk about how you should always, always bring in the investors, have a conversation with them. No one's wiring any money. No one's transferring funds when you don't have a deal. But you're simply talking to them about your business model. You're learning about what their goals are. You're learning more about them. And then once you do that... Then if you find something that meets their financial goals, you share it with them and they're happy that you did because you know what their financial goals are. And now you're sharing something that makes sense for them based on what you've seen. So always, always build the anticipation with investors first and then you roll into the deal after that.
1: Again, it kind of follows that similar thought process you've adopted in regards to the underwriting and you know, anticipating what they're going to come back with instead of waiting for them to come back and then... Reacting. Something else that you said that was very interesting is kind of changing subjects a little bit, but it was about when you said that you would think that and you kind of look out and say, okay, in two to three years, I'll probably get to the point where I'll reach that tipping point. And I know for you, it's kind of normal to think that way and it's normal to think two, three years in advance. But I know for me personally, I've not gotten to that point until fairly recently. And I would say that I still am not very good at it. But it seems like a lot of people are more, focused on like tomorrow or the next week or the next month and it's very difficult for them to expand their horizon and think two to three years in the future. So I'm curious how you're able to do that and what kind of you've done to kind of strengthen that muscle in your head to be able to see and think further out into the future instead of just next month, or even the next year, or six months. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it makes sense. It's through these conversations I have on the podcast because I've been able to learn how people lost their life savings, went bankrupt, got divorced, and were incredibly depressed during the financial crisis. Now it's, what, eight years later, I'm talking to them and they're telling us what they learned, what they experienced, how they got to that point, and what they're doing now. And by doing that, I'm able to anticipate what's gonna happen for my business. And there's a couple of things, a couple of takeaways. One is make sure you have enough money. Some might get fancy and say, make sure your project is capitalized properly. Just make sure you got enough cash in the bank account so that when things go down, you can pay the mortgage, pay the taxes, pay the insurance, and ride out the storm. That's most important, you don't lose a property. The other is you've gotta make sure that you have multiple streams of income. Because if you're a fix and flipper and then the music stops in the market and you're stuck with projects, then those projects get taken back. And then there's a domino effect because you might have cross-collateralized. You might have some money in each of those projects. You might not have any money in the project, but if you don't, then you probably have it through a private money lender. And if you burn that bridge, then there goes your reputation. So... You've got to make sure that you have multiple income streams to make money. In my business, I make money in multiple ways. One is, first and foremost, make the most of my money through multifamily syndication, being on the general partnership side. Then I do consulting to teach people how to do that. And I also have this podcast, which at this point depending on where I allocate team members' compensation, it would lose money every time. Uh, so I need to bring in more sponsorship dollars. Or if I allocate team members across different projects like my multi family syndication project, then perhaps it breaks even. But that's okay with me right now because I'm growing it. I'm growing the podcast. And as a best ever listener, if you are a fix and flipper, then what are the ways can you earn income? Well, one is property management. If you're able to get into the property management game or if you're able to hold on to some rentals and not have them highly leveraged and they cash flow, then there's another way. And I didn't even mention that. That's another way how I make money. I totally forgot about my three single family homes. The reason why is because they, in general, break even because they'll make $250 a piece a month, but then I'll have one tenant move out and then there's like a $5,000 cost as a result of them moving out. And then that just kills the profits for all three of them for 12 months. But in theory, (laughs) that's another income stream that I have. But as a fix and flipper, you can do buy and holds, you can do property management, you could do something else. As a accredited investor who's looking to invest passively, well, here is your additional income stream, whether you invest in deals like mine, or if you buy notes, or if you just do a debt-based lending to people in your local market, or you invest in crowdfunding platforms like Flip, which is the show's sponsor. There's all sorts of different ways, and that's been the key to how I anticipate what's ahead, is I just look at what's happened in the past. And I learn from it through other people's experiences and making sure that we are cash heavy. And we are able to bring in that cash through multiple income streams are two main takeaways I've gotten from all the interviews I've done.
1: Yeah, there's a quote, I can't remember who says it. And this is kind of like a high level version of it. but It's like, a wise man learns from others' mistakes and a fool learns from his own. So it seems like you <laughs> you live that that quote out in, in real life. Something that's curious, I'm sure this is, I want to say playing devil's advocate, but just a curious question. Is there like a limit to what you say someone would, would have for income streams? Like for example, would you say you know, stop at five or is there, you can go on to 20, 30, Income streams, or would you say that it's you know focus on a certain number, and once you get above a certain number of income streams, then you're not able to put as much effort and time into it as it deserves, and it might end up kind of crumbling, I guess.
0: I think there needs to be a cost-benefit analysis done yeah. because we're all really, really good at one thing, maybe two if we're lucky. I mean, just phenomenal at one, maybe two things. Mm-hmm. And then we're proficient at other things, then we're average and just we're terrible at certain things. So it's important to maximize what we're really, really, really good at and ride that for our lifetime because that's where we're going to make the majority of our money, especially when you look at the ROI on your time. That's one. And then everything else is then just a cost-benefit analysis. Okay, Mm -hmm. how much time am I putting into this and what is the income that I'm receiving and Is it costing me income on my main revenue stream because I'm focusing on getting X number of streams of income? So you just got to take a look at it and assess it. I can tell you that the big way that I make money is multifamily syndication where I'm on the general partnership side. I'm not going to let anything detract that progress. Even though I champion multiple streams of income, I'm going to make sure that that is my primary focus and it is and it will continue to be. But I also recognize other ways, like those single family homes, in theory, I'm making $750 a month, assuming there's no move outs. Then even when there is a move out, I'm not spending any time on that thing. Like none, zero, zero time on those single family homes because I have a management company. But it took some time to acquire each of those. That's why I'm not buying anymore because I don't want to spend the time to just do all that. I'd rather buy a large apartment building and make much more money by doing that. So I'd say you'd have to look at the cost-benefit analysis, but don't ever let it take away from what you're phenomenal at because that's where you can get the best ROI.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The two takeaways that I think of from that is number one, first you have to recognize and realize what you're good at. That's kind of a a hard thing to do first. And once you realize that, then exploit that. And then something else too, in regards to the multiple income streams, it's kind of what you've done. You've done one, you've gotten to the point where you feel like you're competent in that. And then you add the other one and then kind of build that up and then another one and build that up instead of adding three different income streams at once, like doing wholesaling and multifamily syndication and the single family homes and just starting that all in one day, because obviously, that wouldn't work either. So it's also <laughs> important to start with just one at first, build that one up. And it seems like it's common sense, but from some of the books that I've read, it seems like I guess people actually do that and they fall flat on their face when they try doing too much at once and on a smaller scale. I see myself doing it sometimes in regards to you know different activities that I'm doing or trying to balance podcasts and then reading books and then watching documentaries. And I'm like, oh, I'm kind of overwhelming myself right now. Mm-hmm. Let's just focus on one first instead of trying to kind of shotgun approach it and hope I hit the right area.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes you have to sample areas before you pick that one area. I did that whenever I was in advertising. I was teaching a class on how to buy out of state. I was living in New York City, but investing in Dallas, Fort Worth. And people were like, how are you buying homes, but you are a vice president of this advertising agency. And I told them how I was buying homes and they're like, wow, that's so interesting. I ended up teaching a class because enough people said, that's interesting. How are you Mm -hmm. doing this? I started doing that while I had my full-time job. I was investing while I had my full-time job. I took an improv class to get better at public speaking, and then that evolved into, or devolved, depending on how you thought my performance went, into a a stand-up comedy routine at Gotham Comedy Club. So that was something I sampled, and it didn't taste good at all.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, sorry for interrupting, but the comedy thing, how did that go? Like, just public speaking-wise, and because, I mean, that's terrifying. Yeah. It's (laughs) like the scariest thing that there is, is like, doing something and kind of exposing yourself and trying to be funny and then you have no control over whether or not someone laughs at you i'm sure that was a character growing experience yeah
0: yeah it certainly was i think that if you put in youtube joe Fairless gotham comedy club it should come up i don't know no it doesn't i'll have to oh i don't know if people want to hear
1: Well I, well, I think it'd be a positive thing, just because yeah. again, it's it's so, uh. so long ago and you've grown so okay, much. Okay,
0: well, yeah, we'll put that. Where should we put that?
1: YouTube channel for sure.
0: Oh man, I don't know about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well,
0: for people who really, really, really want to see me, then email me info i n f o at joefairless and just mention comedy routine. And my assistant, Samantha, will email you a link to the comedy routine. So if you really want to see it <laughs> trying to be funny, then then you can go ahead and check that out. But as far as how it went, I thought it went pretty well because I also had a lot of friends in attendance and that yeah. helped. My boss was in the front row and she was a butt of one of my jokes that I kind of ad-libbed. Because the previous comedian, and for anyone who watches the the video, you'll hear this joke I mentioned about Girl in the Red Dress. Well, she's my boss. So now you have a little bit more context, and it'll probably be a little bit funnier. And two, the comedian right before me was talking about this girl, Melissa, is her name, in the red dress. And he was just kind of poking fun at her. And so I then continued that reference. And so a lot of my friends really enjoyed that, because she was a higher up at the company I was at Mm -hmm. at the time. The strategic takeaway, it was an experience that was completely uncomfortable, and I never wanted to do long-term or professionally. I just was doing it to hone my skill set and mission accomplished because talk about if you want to get good at public speaking, there's Toastmasters, which is great. I highly recommend that. There's Improv, or then there's Stand-Up Comedy. And I would venture to say that stand-up comedy, out of all those, is the most difficult because (laughs) you've got to make people laugh on average every seven seconds. And it was something else where you're supposed to come prepared so the audience has a higher level of expectation for you than if it was improv. Mm -hmm. If it was improv, they're like, oh, he's just seeing this broomstick for the first time. That's kind of funny, so I'll laugh really hard because he did a good job with the broomstick. But stand-up comedy, you better have all your material laid out and you're there to perform and you're there to perform a predetermined routine that you've practiced. So it's very nerve-wracking and I did it once after Gotham Comedy Club and then... And I did it just because my buddy produced a show in New York City, and he needed an extra comedian who could bring some people. Uh, <laughs> so I brought a couple people, and after that, I was like, "Okay, I'm officially retiring from the comedy circuit."
1: That's still awesome. Again, I was saying before, I have a huge fear, you know, public speaking, on the spot, making a joke, and kind of putting yourself out there. And so I'm sure you can learn so much. I've actually thought about that for the longest time. I'm just like, one day I'm going to do that. This is the thought of it. Just like just you saying that. Makes me like st- it's like knowing you did that and like hearing you say it, it makes me like all anxious just <laughs> thinking about being up there. <laughs> but, oh, but, but I know we're running out of time here, but something else that you said too about kind of like testing things out, something that Tim Ferriss said in that podcast that we were talking about before here, uh, Monkey Brain. And he was saying life's all about doing about two week experiments and then six month projects. And kind of the way that I looked at that is like you test something out for two weeks and then if you think it's worth taking a deeper look at or spending more time on, then you kind of figure out how to do it in a six-month project. Or after two weeks, if you realize you don't like it, you know, like stand-up comedy you do for two weeks and you realize, eh, this isn't really doing anything for me, then you don't turn into a six-month project. You kind of eliminate it and find another two-week experiment to do. And so that I feel like people that are in real estate investing can – because there's so much you can do that that'd be a good way. I mean, it'd be a good way to kind of test out things that you like, whether it be a two-week – reading a book about it or two weeks shadowing a wholesaler for two weeks and seeing how it is or or things along those lines or hiring a, a coach for two weeks or whatever it is, just give something, you know, two weeks of your time. And if you don't like it, don't do it again. But if you do like it, then it'll totally be worth those two weeks that you put in.
0: Oh, I love that. I didn't pick up on that when I was listening to the monkey brain episode. And by the way, best ever listeners, we're talking about Tim Ferriss, podcast, the Tim Ferriss show and his episode titled How to Cage a Monkey Brain, episode 175. He's at the Google office and a bunch of people are asking him questions and then there's a moderator asking him questions and he talks about that. The reason why I have this podcast because of the two-week experiment and six-week project, yeah. if you look at the very, very first like 10 episodes of this podcast, they were done within a two- to three-week period And then I was like, okay, now I want to really test this thing and I'm going to do it daily for the end of the calendar year, which would have been October, November, December. So it's three months. And then I'm going to reassess and ended up being a good use of my time. I got a sponsor and the rest is history. On that same podcast episode, he talked about a program called Boomerang, B-O-O-M-E-R-A-N-G. I'm a big fan of that because I get a lot of emails and all emails I want to clear out of my inbox. That's just how I am. And some, I don't want to get caught in the back and forth of this is now Messenger. It's no longer email. But if I like saved it and then to the draft, then I wasn't sure I'd have to then think about it and go back and reply. And Boomerang allows you to do is to reply instantly, but set it so that it sends the email whenever you want to send it in the future, which is amazing. I immediately downloaded it after I heard him talk about how he manages his inbox and all the requests that he gets. And I've implemented it and it's just so good. I'm able to reply to people and set the expectation for when I will reply to them. I've got certain priorities in my life and the first would be my clients from a business standpoint. The first would be my clients. Uh, investors, and people who are in my consulting program. If they ask me a question, I'm going to respond to them immediately. But then you got the next layer and the next layer and the next layer. And the farther out you go, in order to just live my life, I'm going to have to reply in a longer period of time so that I don't just get inundated with random requests for phone calls and things like that. So uh, Best Ever listeners, if you come across that similar challenge... I recommend getting Boomerang. It is free, but there's a paid service too, depending on how much you use it. But I recommend getting it. And on the podcast note, July was the most downloads the podcast has ever gotten in one month. Over 135,000 downloads in the month of July. And the podcast is growing month over month at a pretty good rate. Really, really grateful that that's happening because we're able to grow our community and do bigger and better things for everybody who's involved in the community of best ever listeners so first off thank you best ever listeners for being a part of that i am very grateful and uh, looking forward to continuing to bring on best ever quality guests and growing this thing together with you and then lastly i want to mention before we sign off I want to mention that YouTube has had a love-hate relationship with me, and I've had the same relationship with YouTube. In particular, when I first got started on YouTube, I wanted thousands of views. But now I've come to grips that because I've focused my YouTube channel to only talk about multifamily syndication – So how do you evaluate apartments? How do you buy them? And how do you bring in investors to make it all happen? Since I'm only focused my efforts on multifamily syndication within YouTube, I now have come to grips with, it's not going to be a bunch of views, but rather it's going to be highly targeted views for people who want to learn multifamily syndication. And I'm okay with that. And from a marketer's standpoint, I've got 10 years of working in marketing. It was a tough pill to swallow at first. But now I'm understanding it's all about being highly specific. I mean, this podcast is as general as you can be because it's all real estate investing. But the YouTube channel wanted to make something that is solely specific to what I'm focused on. And I'm good with the progress that we've had there.
1: That's awesome. On a marketing standpoint, that's cool that with your 10 years of experience, you're able to get to that point where accept that. So that's awesome so good for you and also i'm sure if the best ever listeners could talk to you right now they'd be saying they'd be grateful to you for having this daily podcast for three years i'm sure it was tough especially in the beginning because i mean as a new podcaster i can relate and so that's awesome that you're able to continue doing it for however long you've been doing it for two three years and kind of stay focused and keep your eye again on the future and thinking two three years in advance and so again i'm sure if the best ever listeners could talk to you they'd say thank you. And from my perspective, you know, good for you. And it's good to see that you're getting all those views because it's kind of a a goal that I can look at and be like, okay, if I stick with this for two, three years, then the results will come. But if you start thinking about a week in advance or a month in advance, then that's how you're ultimately probably going to fail. So thank you for that.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. And you're right. You just got to be consistent and really have that six-month project and then Extend it for another six months. And as long as you see progress and growth and you're getting good value from it, then all is good. And best ever listeners, because my YouTube channel is so focused on multifamily syndication, I'd love to answer a question that you have on multifamily syndication through my YouTube channel. So all you need to do to ask a question is you could tweet me. My Twitter handle is at Joe Fairless, or you can email info, at joefairless.com and ask me what your multifamily syndication question is. Maybe it's (laughs) what is multifamily syndication? (laughs) Or maybe it's more specific, like how do you structure each deal for investors and for the general partnership? Or maybe it's how much money should you raise? Or what should you name your company? Anything along those lines. You can tweet at me at Joe Fairless or email info at JoeFairless.com and ask your question. Then I will attempt to answer it through the YouTube channel with a personal video. With that being said, Theo, what's the best place the best ever listeners can find
1: you? Visit my website at TheoHicks.org or you can subscribe to the Unplugged podcast on iTunes are oh, the two best ways.
0: Awesome. Well, Theo, hey, it's good catching up, my friend. Best ever listeners. Hope you have a best ever weekend and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Best ever listeners, Matt Bowles, who was a guest on episode 289. His company, Maverick Investor Group, has a special report just for you on how to avoid the seven biggest mistakes in real estate that investors make in the 2016 boom cycle. Get yours free at maverickinvestorgroup.com forward slash best ever. That's M-A-V-E-R-I-C-K investorgroup.com forward slash best ever.